This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. It is the week of the Oscars and we are so happy to have our yearly visit from New York Times pop culture reporter and the award season columnist, also known as the projectionist, Cal Buchanan. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we start, I just want to say congratulations because you were recently awarded the Journalist of the Year Award at the National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Awards at the LA Press Club. That's huge. That's very kind of you. I'd like the listeners to note that I made Christina say that. <laughs> he, uh, he did not. I'd like no, no, to no. note that. But I know that you also won for your feature on Brad Pitt and on the Mad Max an oral history that you did both were excellent thank you yeah well uh, as far as that mad max oral history is concerned it led to a book-length version that is hopefully coming out later in this year so follow me on Whoa. twitter if you want to learn more about that book i will put it available for pre-order as soon as i get the link it is juicy it's so good there are so many stories i am dying to share but you know I mean I'm contractually obligated to wait for them to come out in the book so I love it well I'll be calling you for an interview ahead of that book <laughs> <laughs> happily that's great well let's start with the Oscars it's such a different year different show there's some interesting and intriguing news coming out about what it actually is going to look like on Sunday take us behind the scenes a little bit about what you know from your reporting a lot is going to look different. And it's not just because of the pandemic, although that obviously is like the impetus for these changes. You know, if everything else is broke, why not fix it? Um, so it's going to be in a different location than it normally is. Usually it's in the Dolby Theater, which can seat a few thousand people and does. Uh, this time it's at Union Station in Los Angeles. It's this big grand train station where they're sort of filling up all the courtyards. And it's really just going to be restricted to the nominees, the presenters, and their plus ones. So it'll be more intimate, more COVID safe. I think they're going to rotate people into tables, uh, sort of the uh, tables akin to like the Golden Globes, but much mm -hmm. more, I think, in the spirit of early Oscar ceremonies, you know, from the 40s and 50s, where everybody would be grouped together. Uh, if you watch the Grammys recently, I think it's yeah. supposed to work something like that. But to me, the most intriguing thing is that it's visually going to look a lot different. It's going to be shot in 24 frames per second instead of 30. If you're not a tech head, what that means is that it's going to look more like a movie than a soap opera, you know, or a talk show. Uh, and that doesn't just extend to the frame rate. You know, Steven Soderbergh was saying over the weekend that he wants to shoot it like a movie and that, you know, it's not just going to be a camera on the winner and all these, you know, scattered reaction shots from the audience. He wants to shoot it like he'd shoot a film where there will be over the shoulder shots where it feels entirely more cinematic. They're even calling the, the presenters a cast. So it's really interesting that there's a new aesthetic approach being taken to this show because there hasn't been a shakeup like that in a long, long time. You were mentioning Steven Soderbergh, the Oscar winning director, of course, but he's never done an, or an award show, as far as I know. Yeah. And the music, I also understand, will be placed in the pre-show and not in the, in the show itself. Yeah. Um, the performances are going to be pre-taped and they're going to 
be played in full during the pre-show, which is sort of interesting, you know, in lieu of that traditional orgiastic red carpet experience that goes on for truly hours. And I've worked that red carpet, so I know it. Um, you know, since they can't really do that this year, they're looking for other ways to fill up the pre-show. And one of those is going to be playing those performances in full. And then, of course, that probably makes it more feasible that the actual ceremony will be, you know, will come in around three hours, which is always uh, the network goal. But I don't mind the idea. I mean, you know, I've always advocated for do a long Oscars as long as you can make the entire thing feel worthwhile. That's right. something to aspire to. It's what they do to the Super Bowl, literally down to the fact that people anticipate those commercials, which would usually be, you know, the most heinous thing. But that's how effectively they've branded that night. And I've always called on the Oscars to do the same. You know, I've called on them too to sort of put more big movie trailers that people are eager to see during those commercial breaks. I was sort of surprised that Disney, uh, you know, which owns ABC, the, the network that broadcasts the Oscars here, um, and also owns Marvel, just decided to release the Shang-Chi trailer today. I'm, I'm speaking to you on Monday, mm-hmm. when that would have been a great get for the Oscars. Although I have heard that Steven Spielberg's West Side Story remake might be airing its first trailer during the Oscars. But that's just, you know, the idea of taking this night and saying, if you love movies, tune in for the pre-show, for the ceremony, for the post-show, you will have that love of movies amply rewarded and we will meet you where you live. You know, there's a lot of ways to do that. And I think over the last several years, the Oscars have struggled to find exactly the right way. And, and there's, there's, there's so much that they just kept kind of doing from sheer habit rather than because it's the best way to handle, you know, a big behemoth like this. So this is must be the longest award season ever. You must be exhausted. <laughs> this has been going on. It's at the end of April. How has this impacted the, you know, the films themselves and who is nominated? I mean, nobody's shocked to hear it's a weird year, right? I mean, the, the Oscar season, like you said, has been pushed, has been extended. Normally, this ceremony would have been in February. Now it's in late April. That was meant because, you know, the the movie calendar was in such disarray. I think when they first announced that uh, idea, uh, what, last summer, they were hoping that the pandemic might be a little bit more uh, concluded uh, and that people might be in theaters again. That's obviously not been, you know, the the case to the extent that I think Hollywood had hoped for. Um, But the result of that is, honestly, instead of, you know, instead of, creating more cushion for these movies, it just has made the whole damn thing longer. You know, Mm -hmm. the movies were still coming out in September, October, November, for the most part. And while there are some like Judas and the Black Messiah and The Father that took advantage, you know, came out in late February and got good momentum, those films had been showing for a while. I saw The Father over a year ago, last January at Sundance, the same Sundance I saw Promising Young Woman at. So it's been a marathon. It's been an endurance contest because a lot of those movies have had to sustain momentum, interest, buzz, hype for now practically a year and a half, which is in the case of Sound of Metal, which came out, you know, two Toronto film festivals ago. That's even longer. Yeah. So I think everybody's a little exhausted 
not physically exhausted, but mentally, you know, uh, I wouldn't mind actually being a little more physically exhausted because it would mean I was going to more fun events, which obviously (laughs) they were not having this year. It was all Zoom. Right. But there is some worry that there won't be a huge viewership, right? Because there's no sort of big blockbuster Titanic type movies this year. That's true. A lot of the really big blockbusters went to, you know, this year instead of this past year, uh, because they want to make that money up in theaters if they're able. Um, I think the ratings were would have probably trended downward anyway. Uh, Just linear television ratings are in kind of a weird spot these days with, you know, the glut of other entertainment options Mm -hmm. and the other ways that people consume this. And that's the thing I want to stress. The ratings this year will be the worst ever. Pretty much I'll guarantee that. But that doesn't mean that the Oscars have lost their reach. You know, something as simple as Stephen Yeun becoming the first Asian American to be nominated for Best Actor for Minari. When those nominations were announced, not a lot of people in this world had seen Minari yet. I mean, you know, I had it again last, uh, last January at Sundance. Sorry, does this seem braggy? Yes. <laughs> it's been a long year. That's the only reason I'm, I'm, I'm saying it. But, you know, for the most part, that movie hadn't really come out yet. So even people who were interested in movies didn't necessarily have a way to see it. However, the impact of something like that, I'm just using that as a test case, you know, the most viral tweets, like the biggest social media response, you know, that's the sort of thing that it was engendering. And I think that's important to keep in mind that this isn't just a rating situation. The reach of the Oscars is going to extend on Twitter. It's going to extend into newspaper articles. It's going to be a thing that you read about, you know, for years and years. And the Oscars still have that power. Um, But one thing I'm very excited about is there's so many historic moments that happened in the nominations and that could happen. And with the winners, of course, I'm thinking of two women nominated for best director. I mean, we literally only have, have had one in 93 years actually win of the Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow. What are some of those historic nominations and wins that you see happening that could really shake things up? Yeah, I mean, and then at the nomination level alone, we have 70 women who've received 76 total Oscar nominations this year, which is a record. Uh, Chloe Jaw, who directed Nomadland, also wrote it, produced it, uh, edited it. Um, she's the most nominated woman in a single ceremony and it's the most diverse acting lineup ever. You know, we, there are nine non-white actors nominated. That's more than seven, which I think was the previous record in, uh, 2007 and 2017, something pretty crazy that could happen this year. Cause it just happened at the SAG awards, the screen actors guild awards is that all four acting races could be won by people of color. That would be Oscar history. That would be brand new. And for it to also happen in the same year that Chloe Jaw is almost certainly going to become the first woman of color to win Best Director. I mean, this could be a very, very landmark year as far as representation goes at the Oscars. Though none of those things are guaranteed, uh, that scenario is very, very plausible. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's get into, I want to hear some of your predictions to see which scenarios you actually think in these top categories. Let's start with screenplay, (laughs) where I was mentioning that both Chloe Zhao and um, Emerald Fennell are nominated in each category. But talking about adapted screenplay, we have Borat, The Father, Nomadland, One Night in Miami, and The White Tiger. What are you thinking? 
you know, it's an interesting year in this category because just look at those movies. They are so different. You've got movies adapted from plays. You have a movie that is adapted from a book in the case of Nomadland, but was heavily improvised. So was Borat extremely improvised. Yeah, that's Before adapted I just won... from a movie. <laughs> well, from it's adapted from prequel. a sequel, but it's basically setting up scenarios and seeing what plays out. You know, but it, then again, it just won the Writers Guild Award for Adapted Screenplay. So even, you know, writers who do more traditional projects were pretty knocked out by what they accomplished. All that said, the path to best picture almost always leads through the screenplay races. It's very hard to win best picture without first picking up a screenplay award. And when you do it, it's because, you know, it, something like The Artist, which is silent, um, you know, or a film that maybe like Titanic had a, its screenplay derided, but almost every other aspect of it was top notch. That would seem to mean that Nomadland is the front runner here. It didn't win at Writers Guild because it wasn't eligible. Um, it's not the traditional movie that wins in this category, but given that it feels like such an inexorable best picture front runner, though we'll get there, and there are a couple other things that could happen in that category. I think this is probably going to be Nomadland, barring a late surge from The Father. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is number two as well. There's a lot of talk about that one, sort of all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's been hanging around all season because yeah. people had seen it. I saw a lot of discontent uh, on film and awards Twitter saying, oh, Sony Pictures Classics is screwing up its uh, campaign for The Father. But it worked out really well because they held it till the very end of the season to really start showing it to people. Mm -hmm. And obviously that has paid off at these award shows. And so uh, original, sorry, we have Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. That's Sorkin, of course. <laughs> well, that, yeah, exactly that. I mean, you don't bet against Aaron Sorkin when it comes to writing, but this year you should because he didn't win at Writer's Skills. Uh, instead, that winner was Emerald Fennell, who wrote Promising Young Woman and directed it. She's nominated there as well. And I think the same thing will happen at the Oscars. I think Emerald will prevail. Listen, when the category says original screenplay, they really, really respond to originality. And you've got to admit whether you liked or hated Promising Young Woman, it has original in spades over Trial of the oh, Chicago yeah. 7. So I, I'm pretty sure uh, that film is going gonna, is gonna to win. And <clears throat> it could be another bit of Oscar history. Because if Emerald wins that category and Chloe Jaw wins adapted screenplay, it's the first time that both the screenplay races have gone to women who were the sole writers of their films. And because this is, as you were saying, that it's original, this is the category where you'll find like a Wes Anderson, Sophia Coppola, another type or of Or Jordan Peele. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also often the place where they say, we love your movie. It might be a little too out there to win Best Picture. So here's your prize. I want to sneak in with film editing because I want to ask you, I remember last time you told me that film editing is one of those categories that statistically the winner of best picture is in there doesn't have to win but it's one of the five and there we have the father nomadland promising young woman sound of metal and the trial of chicago seven is it in there <laughs> yes i do think so i mean i think you know i think 
probably the three movies that are best positioned to win Best Picture are Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, all five movies were nominated for Best Picture. Um, this winner might be interesting. I was surprised that Sound of Metal won at BAFTA, you know, the British equivalent of the Oscars, because the editing is, I mean, subtle, I yeah, guess. Yeah. It's, it's very well edited, but they usually like Flash. They usually like a memorable take. And while that film has an incredibly memorable sound mix, the editing itself is not that memorable. The thing that it made me start thinking because I, th- I believe that Sound of Metal also tied with Chicago 7 at the Critics' Choice Awards for the same category. I think these voters are seeing Riz Ahmed as a drummer and they're thinking of Miles Teller as a drummer oh, in yeah. Whiplash. And Whiplash had very kinetic, very visceral editing and won that Oscar. So I think they're somewhat confusing that film for this one and maybe that's why they're voting for it which makes me hesitant to bet against it for the Oscars, but I'm going to because the movie that actually has the flashiest editing in a very quiet category is The Trial of the Chicago, the Trial of the Chicago 7, which is just constantly cross-cut, constantly Archival, juggling timelines yeah. and characters, you know, can have a million cuts within the same scene. The other movies are so sedate that I just have to think you know, Flash wins out here. The Father has interesting editing because you don't really know where you are, but also very subtle. The Father has fantastic editing. It's it's meant to disorient you in that same subtle way as, as you know, uh, the main character's condition. I just think, you know, again, they like Flash. Uh, the Father's editing reminds me of, you know, Parasite's production design, let's mm-hmm. say. And they loved Parasite last year. And I don't think there was a more memorable movie location than that house. house. Yeah. But it still didn't win production design. They wanted something bigger, more maximal, more obvious. And they gave it to, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Again, a very worthy winner. But so that makes me think that, again, they're going to go with the more maximal, obvious choice here. And that's Chicago 7 rather than the others. Unless they just think drumming interesting <laughs> editing so you're you're you thinking today that you're going with the trial i'm going film. with chicago seven and directing we hardly have to talk about right you already said you you think that's a sure thing for chloe Zhao. i do actually um you know we've had a lot of picture director splits and nomadland has dominated both of those categories i'm more confident that it will win best director than it will win best picture and we'll get to that but I do think Chloe is locked in here. That's no shade to the other winners. Um, uh, once upon a time, you know, back in what, September or October, I thought that Fincher, David Fincher, who directed Mank, might have a shot here because they really do respond to big, they respond to technical expertise. You know, they want a really audaciously directed film. And if you think audacious, not just in the in the in content which promising young woman has 
But in technical expertise, well, that's obviously Mank, especially in this year. Yeah, and movies about Hollywood. Well, yeah, although that didn't help Quentin Tarantino all that much. No, that's true. Hollywood. Yeah. Or Bradley Cooper with A Star is Born. That used to hold true. So we can put that to bed. <laughs> well, I got waylaid by that tradition a couple of times in my predictions. So I know I know not to uh, not to necessarily assume it's ironclad this year. But yeah, so I thought Mank, you know, which is the most technically dazzling of these movies, you know, in a year where a lot of big movies simply didn't come out, would have the edge here. But I just think like people have really cooled on that movie and especially it came out very early in this very long season um, that I, I think this is absolutely Chloe's to lose. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and also the fact that Fincher doesn't have an Oscar after his incredible career that he's had is is pretty surprising he doesn't have an oscar i mean he he has he started his uh career not making oscar movies at all but yeah certainly within you know with uh uh benjamin button and social network and mank these you know the either he's found the groove or the academy has found its groove with him i just don't think it's going to result in his oscar happening this year and I feel alone now because I liked Mank, but it seems like not many other people do. But I'm very happy for Chloe. So I'm all in for that. Well, to be fair, it got by far the most nominations. I know, but somehow it just has no momentum. Those may not translate into wins. Yeah. It could be a situation like The Irishman last year where it had, you know, all those nominations and got nothing for Netflix. But that said, like I said, I, I do think um, Mank is... a. Uh, Mank uh, could probably at least win production design. So before we get into the uh, last, the actors and best picture, is there anyone you want to discuss that will lead us into that? Or did we cover most of those? I mean, I feel ready. Let's go. Let's go. go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Supporting actor. Let's do that. Sasha Baron Cohen, Daniel Kaluuya, Leslie Odom Jr., Paul Racy, and Lakeith Stanfield. So here we have the two which should be leads, Judas and the Black Messiah right. um, against each other. I mean, arguably the only real supporting actor in this list is Paul Racy in Sound of Metal, who has, you know, less screen time. It is not his journey. The others are all almost certainly leads of their films, if not co-leads. But hey, <laughs> I have to make my peace with that, you know. Um, it, it is funny, though, that a lot of the time these awards campaigns will split up two obvious co-leads and say one is the lead actor, one is the supporting actor so they can get more nominations. And that's what they tried to do with Judas and the Black Messiah. They tried to say Lakeith Stanfield was the lead and Daniel Kaluuya was the supporting actor. Oscar voters, though, are allowed to vote for those people in any category they so please. They can make their own decisions who's the lead and who's supporting. So we ended up with the odd situation where they are both nominated, but in the supporting category. And now obviously that means that they definitely got votes in the best actor category. They just ended up getting more here. Um, I think ultimately this is not going to be a a category split. It's going to end up going to Daniel Kaluuya in the same way that the last time we had a supporting actor split, which was three billboards over uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri Sam Rockwell ended up winning over his co-star Woody Harrelson because the performance was that undeniable this season. And that's what Daniel Kaluuya is delivering. And he's just won everything, right? (laughs) All the precursors. He's won everything that can be won. 
uh, famously muted at the beginning of his Golden Globe <laughs> speech. Um, but he's terrific. He's, you know, he's been nominated before. So this sort of is the Oscars way of saying, yes, we were right to nominate him for that. And they are about to canonize him as the great talent that he is. And then we have the supporting actress, Maria Bakalova, Glenn Close, Olivia Colman, um, Amanda Seyfried, and Yu Jung-yeon from Minari. At one point, just, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I thought this was one of the most wide open races. Um, that said, in the last few weeks, this really seems to have, um, you know, uh, all sort of come together to favor Yu Jung Yoon from Minari. She plays the grandma in that film. She is wonderful. She ended up winning the Screen Actors Guild Award. And then she also won at BAFTA and made the most delightful speech where she said that victory was all the more resonant because the Brits are such snobs. Yeah. So for them to like her really meant something. And that's charming. And I, I've said before that if you make a great acceptance speech, that can help your cause as much as anything because it is, to some extent, what people imagine when they vote for you. They don't want you to go up there and be like indifferent to it. They want you to be the right level of moved and funny. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know that if she wins that, it'll be a moment and that really helps. So I think, I think, yeah, this is, this is almost certainly going to go to Yu Jung Yoon. Yeah, I think so too. Poor Glenn Close. <laughs> Both Poor for, Glenn for Close, the role yeah. And for the... <laughs> Glenn, Glenn Close and Hillbilly Elegy, if she loses here, she will tie Peter O'Toole's record for the actor with the most losses uh, in acting categories. At least by the time Peter O'Toole set that record of eight uh, winless nominations, he'd been given uh, an honorary Oscar. I think he got it at age 72, which is younger than Glenn Close currently is. So the question is, do they keep holding out, waiting for Glenn to get it herself? Or give her that honor. Will, they, will they give her that honorary Oscar sometime soon? We'll see. I think I see that one coming. <laughs> so maybe, here's the maybe. most difficult one, um, because these five incredible performers have won everywhere and precursors, so it's hard, and that's actress in leading role. Viola Davis, Andra Day, Vanessa Kirby, Frances McDormand, and Carrie Mulligan. Um, I'm yeah. stuck here. <laughs> A lot of the key prizes have just been spread around. There has not felt like there was a specific front runner. That said, from the voters I've spoken to, I feel like the two that are getting the most votes are Viola Davis and Carrie Mulligan. So that's who I assume this is going to come down to. And I'm frankly not surprised. I think Vanessa Kirby's movie is an also ran at this point. Andre Day was the sole nomination of her movie, which indicates that maybe they didn't like it as much. Frances McDormand, while terrific, has won this award twice. And it's hard to get your third Oscar. Just ask mm -hmm. Meryl Streep. It took her decades. <laughs> so it, it's natural that this, that this would come down to Viola Davis, who's won once before, but not in the lead category. And she's considered, you know, practically on par with Meryl Streep, if not on par at this point in her career. So shouldn't she have the same hardware? And then you've got Carrie Mulligan, who, you know, burst on the scene with an education where she was Oscar nominated and hasn't gotten one since even though she's considered one of our premier actresses and she's leading a movie that was nominated for best picture, which Viola Davis, Viola Davis's movie was not. 
So it's a nail biter. Yeah. I'm going to go with the SAG winner, uh, Viola Davis, because usually the SAG winner wins and about half the time, all four SAG winners repeat at the Oscars. But I know they really love Promising Young Woman. Will Will that love translate into several categories or will they think, Original screenplay is the place. And I, I wonder if it's feeling like they want to reward Emerald the most, mm-hmm. even more than Carrie. We'll see, though. I wouldn't be shocked if it ends up being Carrie. No, no, I wouldn't either. I'm going with Viola, too, for all the reasons okay. that you said. And I, I have I have that feeling. Um Actor in leading role, Riz Ahmed, Chadwick Boseman, Anthony Hopkins, Gary Oldman, and Steven Yeun. It seems just what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's sort of between Chadwick Boseman and Anthony Hopkins at the moment. I agree. Um, I think it's very unlikely that the Oscars will pass up their only opportunity to give Chadwick Boseman an Oscar. There'll be a posthumous Oscar in the mode of Heath Ledger, uh, and Peter Finch. Um, That said, The Father is speaking at exactly the right time. Anthony Hopkins is Titanic in that movie. But he has won an Oscar before. He also might not be at the Oscars. That's yet to be determined. Uh, I would imagine that Chadwick Boseman's widow, uh, Simone Ledward Boseman, who has been accepting Oscars for him, will be at the Oscars in some form, and it would definitely be a moment for her to accept that. There's just, above and beyond the performances, which in both cases are great, there are more, you know, sort of extracurricular reasons why this will probably go to Chadwick Boseman. So, I mean, unless the father really, really picked its timing well, I would be surprised if, if Chadwick lost. And it is a spectacular performance. I was incredibly moved by Chadwick Boseman. So it's, I mean, it's not, you know, for any sort of posthumous, for any sort of feeling. No, absolutely. You know, and I, I think it also helps that he led a very recent Best Picture nominee, um, you know, Black Panther. And he was great uh, into Five Bloods. Yeah. In, in a normal year, had he not passed away, I think he would still have an extremely strong chance of taking it because the stars were aligned. They love when a movie star takes a role on like this in their forties and nails it to say like, okay, so you're not just a populist movie star. You're an actor too. This would be, this would be a a pretty strong case for the Oscar, no matter what for him. Yes. Yes. I think so too. All right. You have me curious because um, about best picture, our last category here for today, um, because you said you had some stuff that you wanted to discuss here. I'm just going to say the, the father, Judas and the black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, promising young woman, sound of metal and the trial of the Chicago seven. So what's your thinking? I thought Nomadland had this in the bag. Well, for all your listeners who are filling out an Oscar pool, it would be very dumb to vote against Nomadland. Nomadland has won just about everything that can be won, you know, whether it's the Golden Globe or the BAFTA or the Critics' Choice. Um, So it's probably going to be Nomadland, right? Here's the thing that gives me pause. You don't have a juggernaut that looks like Nomadland. Nomadland is a very quiet, contemplative, um, intimate 
movie and it is steamrolling the competition. This movie is not Titanic, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's got the awards profile of a Titanic. I just have to think that because the movie doesn't throw its weight around, that it is susceptible this year. And I do talk to so many people, and this shocks me, never would have predicted this a year ago. Talk to so many people who are enamored by Promising Young Woman. They're giving it number ones and number twos on their ballot. And the, the Oscars have a preferential ballot where, where you rank the movie really matters. I thought that Promising Young Woman would play a little more like The Favorite, which is another recent Best Picture nominee that was very much told by the point of view, from the point of view of women, very much where the male characters were inept or awful, which is not dissimilar to how they are in Promising Young Woman. And that very much alienated a certain swath of male voters that I spoke to at that time who didn't like the favorite, foolishly. Um, I thought that might happen again with Promising Young Woman. Instead, it's playing more like Parasite, which just won last year and felt contemporary, fresh, nervy, and with this ending that really sticks, that you want to talk about. So considering that Parasite won last year as this sort of bolt from the blue, I think that really helps the case for Promising Young Woman. I think that when you're watching all these movies, which again are in some cases very intimate, kind of quiet, um, Promising Young Woman, which tells its story from the very beginning in funny ways, in stylish ways, uh, and is edited, you know, very smartly, cleverly, and not in a languid manner. I don't think you can count out Promising Young Woman here. I'm still probably going to say it's Nomadland. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going no guts, no glory. But if it if promising a woman does win, then give me half credit. <laughs> yes, I and I, I'm 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 surprised that I love it because I I love that movie. But but I thought you might say like the Trial of the Chicago Seven that it's a more traditional movie and it's Aaron Sorkin. It is, and that that Listen, would be so. Surprising. That's the one that I would have expected. But but it's not getting the number one votes. You know, I mean, it's getting some, but it's not not to the degree, not from the people I've spoken to that would really sort of put it, you know, solidly in the race. It, it, it's a movie that does speak to the cultural moment that we found ourselves in last year. It, it helps when you're, you know, thematically grappling with things that are resonant right now. But I don't know. It really feels like Nomadland versus Promising Young Woman from everything I've detected and and the people that I've spoken to. Exciting. Well, we only have a few days to find out. Thank you so much, yeah. Kyle. Um, Thanks for having tell me. Tell the listeners what your what your Twitter at is so they can follow you for the Mad Max book and for your yeah yeah articles. Um, yes, uh, and gif reaction shots. You can follow me at Kyle Buchanan on Twitter. That's K Y L E B U C H A N A N. Thank you so much. I'll see you next year. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. 
As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.